And if you would, go ahead and grab a Bible, whether it's yours or the one in the, the seat in front of you, and turn with me to that passage that Joel read just a little bit ago. It's 1 Peter chapter 2. This morning, we're going to be studying verses 4 through 10. If you haven't been with us this pretty much entire fall, we are slowly working our way through this really important letter that the Apostle Peter wrote to a group of Christians who he called to be different than the world. He was telling them, your Christianity will make you different. I hope that you will have already seen in the sermons that we have done that this message wasn't just relevant for them. It is absolutely relevant today because it really does not matter in what culture you find yourself or what age or what generation. Allegiance to Jesus will mean that you become different than the world. Peter has already showed us how this begins to play out in our lives. A few weeks ago, he said, you as Christians have a different hope than the rest of the world has. Two weeks ago, we said that, that the Christians have a different purpose in life, that we are to be holy, set apart for the singular purpose of glorifying Christ. Last week, we talked about this reality that we as Christians should exhibit and demonstrate a different kind of love than the love that the world offers. It's a love that is earnest, that, that goes to the max, that stretches to the limit of our capacity, and a love that is sincere, full of truth. I wonder this morning, did anybody love one another differently this week? I hope that you did. God's word is a mirror to us. If we look at it and then just walk away and live no different, we have to ask ourselves, are we allowing God to really work in our hearts? In the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at what it looks like to live differently. The way that we interact with our spouses and the way that we interact with positions of authority and the way that we interact with those who don't believe the same way we do. We're going to see all these very practical things. He says, you as Christians are different. But you need to understand something this morning. If you don't understand what Peter says today in our text, then you won't be able to live any of those ways that I just mentioned. If you don't really get it, if you, don't, if you miss out on what, G, or what Peter says here, it's the starting point for all these other things. He says, and he's going to ask each and every one of you this important question. He's going to ask this. What is your foundation? What is your foundation? What are you truly trusting in? What are you building your life upon? Because Peter understands that, that our foundation ultimately determines everything else about our lives. He knows this. He knows that no matter what we're trying to do in building our lives, if the foundation is faulty, then even our best efforts, our best intentions are going to come crashing down. And that's why he reminds believers, he says, we as Christians have a different foundation than anything else in the world. And he points us toward that foundation starting in verse 4. So if you would, read that one verse with me. He says this, as you come to him, and that him is talking about Jesus. If you read up to this point, he's talking about Jesus. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Now, I want to take some time this morning and just kind of break down that one statement. Because in this one verse, we get a very vibrant picture of who Jesus is. You see, the purpose of this passage, the Peter's intention, is that all of us would walk away this morning saying, yes, I'm going to build my life on the foundation of Jesus Christ. That's what he desires. 
But he wants us first to then go back to the basics. Who is this Jesus? You see, people in the first century are asking the same question that we are asking today. Who is Jesus? Really, who is he? Is he a a great moral example? Is he a teacher? Was he a prophet? Is he just another dead religious leader that made a mark on history? Is there anything that sets apart Jesus from all the options of which we could build our lives upon? And Peter says, absolutely. Jesus is a foundation unlike any other. Why is that? Well, he points us toward three realities. Number one, he says this, Jesus is living. Jesus is worthy of building your life upon because he is alive. He calls Jesus there a living stone. Now, I realize 2,000 years after the resurrection, that may seem like old news to some of us in this morning, but do you realize without a resurrected Jesus, there is no Christianity? There is no faith. There is no forgiveness of sins. Without a resurrected Jesus Christ, it was this reality that Jesus is alive that transformed Peter. He can't help but but shout it out, Jesus is alive. He is a living stone. He is not dead. You see, prior to the resurrection, Peter was a man characterized by two things, fear and despair. We get a picture of this in the Gospels. Leading up to his crucifixion, we know that Peter denied Jesus three times, right? He had told Jesus, I will never deny you. I will follow you unto death. And yet when these people began to ask him, he went into self-preservation mode, right? He said, I don't know this Jesus. The gospel of Luke tells us that in that moment, after the third time, Jesus looked at Peter. They made eye contact. And what happened? Peter left and he wept bitterly. He was in despair. After the crucifixion, we see Peter in John chapter 20, verse 19 kind of huddled together with all the disciples. They're in a room and and they're apart from everybody else in Jerusalem. They had huddled themselves into this room. They had locked the door because they were afraid of the Jews. They were afraid that what had happened to Jesus may also happen to them. That is the picture we get of Peter, a man who was fearful, terrified for his life, a man that was in despair, that was disheartened. So with that in mind, that picture, how do you account for the transformation of Peter's life where just a few days after his denying Jesus and hiding from all the people, this same Peter is all of a sudden found in the middle of Jerusalem, in the middle of these crowds of people that had just put Jesus to death, and he is boldly proclaiming Jesus and Jesus alone is God, and he is the only way to salvation. How do you account for that transformation? There's a picture, we get a small picture of that sermon that he delivered in Acts chapter 3, verse 14. I just want you to see the boldness that this person who had been scared now exhibited. Chapter 3, verse 14. Peter says this to the crowd, But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. I sometimes wish the scriptures had emojis because I'm pretty sure that the scripture right here would have the wide-eyed emoji, right? It's like, wow. He literally looks at this crowd and he says, you killed the author of life. But what? But God raised him from the dead. And I am what? I am a witness to this fact. You see, it was the resurrection that changed Peter's life. And now Peter knows Jesus was no ordinary man. 
Jesus was the central piece of God's plan to save mankind. He is alive. He is ruling and reigning as king. He is all powerful. This Jesus is worthy of building your lives upon. He is alive. Unlike all other religious leaders, whether it's Buddha or Joseph Smith, Muhammad, Confucius, Krishna, Jesus is not stuck in the past. He is active and he's alive even today. It was this that transformed Peter's life and it transforms lives today. He says he is a worthy foundation because he is alive. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is utterly reliable. He is living. But Peter doesn't stop there, does he? What does he say? He says Jesus is a living stone. Now, when Peter calls Jesus a stone, when he talks about him with that imagery, he's not talking about just any ordinary stone that you're going to find out in the park or at the street. He's picking up imagery that had been used throughout the Old Testament. Even Jesus himself had used it about this stone that God would place in the world that would change everything. He says, there's going to be a Messiah, a cornerstone on which I'm going to build my kingdom. And so he does exactly what Jesus does. He equates Jesus with the cornerstone that God had promised. He says he is a cornerstone. Verse 6, if you look down there, it says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a what? A cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So not only is Jesus living, Peter says, he is also the chosen and precious cornerstone. He is the chosen and precious cornerstone. He is this cornerstone that when built upon will never put people to shame. Now, friends, that is a tremendous statement. But I I fear we sometimes miss the magnitude of this because today cornerstones aren't, aren't what they used to be, right? Today, if you see a cornerstone, it's usually symbolic. But you have to understand throughout history, cornerstones were uh, hugely important, right? It's massively important. Even when they laid the cornerstone of this room that we're sitting in, 1909, you'll see a picture of this. When they laid the cornerstone, everybody came out for it. They came out to see it. They wanted to to be there when the cornerstone was laid. Now, they had much better beards than I did, so I'll have to work on that. But everybody was part of this. Why? Because the cornerstone was important. Well, if you went back to ancient times, it was even more important. Why? Let me give you a few characteristics of the cornerstone to help you to understand what they're saying about Jesus. First, the cornerstone had to be the very first stone that was laid when constructing a building. Why? Because the dimensions of that cornerstone became the dimensions of the building. The angles of that cornerstone is what the entire building would look like. The lines of that cornerstone was what the lines of the entire building would be. If the dimensions of that cut cornerstone were off, what would happen? The building would entirely be off. It impacted everything. So you can imagine that they took great care in how they chose a cornerstone and how they cut it perfectly and how they laid it. It was an important stone. It was the first stone that had to be laid. But secondly, we see this about a cornerstone. The cornerstone had to be the strongest and usually was the largest stone in the building. You see... If there were any lack of integrity in that stone, if there were any impurities, any structural flaws, if it crumbled in any way, what would happen? It would compromise the rest of the building. 
it had to be large enough. It had to be well made enough that it sustained the weight of the building. Unlike any other stone, it bore the weight of that building. If it went down, the whole building was going to go down as long as aside with it. Finally, third, it was the most valuable stone. I mean, this would make sense after the other two. If the integrity and the design and the character of this stone was dependent upon whatever that was, was telling you what the rest of the building was going to be like, of course, it would be utterly valuable. In fact, the history will show you that, that they would take just as much time to choose the cornerstone and to cut the cornerstone and to lay the cornerstone as they would sometimes to make the entire rest of the building. It was by far the most expensive stone used in ancient architecture. So now I want you to think about all those things that I just said and think about how then does this relate to what Peter says when he says, come to Jesus, the living cornerstone. Whoever trusts in him will never be put to shame. What he is saying this morning is this, the Jesus is the only one able to sustain the weight of all of your life, of all of your hopes, of all of your dreams, of all of your, your, your burdens. He is the only one that can stay in that weight. He's also the only relationship that has immense value. It is Jesus and Jesus alone that should get, set the chorus, set the dimensions, the directions of everything else in your life. He's saying Jesus is the cornerstone. Build your life upon him. Again, this is one of those places where Peter is, is saying exactly what Jesus had said. If you go look in Matthew chapter 7 or Luke chapter 6, Jesus comes to the disciples and what does he say? He says, do not be like the person who builds their life on sand. Be like the person who builds their life on me and my words because I am the rock. If you build your life on sand, what happens? The storms come, the, the waves come, the wind comes, and what happens? Your house goes down. Everything that you work so hard to build comes crumbling down. But he says, you build your life on me, and you will be absolutely secure. I am the rock, the cornerstone that never will disappoint. Well, you need to understand Peter had absolutely found that to be true. And that's why he implores all of us this morning. He looks at each one of you and he says, I encourage you, I implore you, come to him who is the cornerstone. Build your life on him. Value him. Trust him. He can bear your weight, the weight of your life. You know, when he talks about coming to Jesus, it's much more than I think sometimes we think about, right? Right? Sometimes we see a picture of this coming to Jesus as, well, if I just pick up the teachings of Jesus and, and I intellectually assent to those, then I'm good. I believe that Jesus came and he died for sins, and so I must be good, right? No, when he says come to Jesus, it's a much bigger picture than that. What he's really saying is I want you to come and put all the weight of everything you are onto him. Now, when I was a youth pastor, I was a youth pastor for a number of years, Whenever we would go to camp, there were many times where we'd go and the camp counselors or the directors or whatever it was would make us do this horrible thing that was created in order to help you to get to trust other Christians or other, your, the people in your group. And it's called the trust fall. Have any of you ever done that? Participated? Some of you went to youth camp or some, some of you, maybe your corporate um, groups have done this. The trust fall. In essence, you may have taken different ways of doing it, but it all comes down to one simple thing. 
Usually there's a circle or there's a group behind you. And what they ask you to do is they ask you to close your eyes, which is never a good idea in these kind of things, right? That doesn't make it better. You close your eyes, you tighten your body, put your arms like this, and what? You shift the gravity back until you fall, right? Hoping that somebody else catches you on the other side. Now, when it comes to people, that's not a great idea. I've seen that gone go bad way too many times. But that's the picture that Peter is painting. He's saying, I want you to take all of your life, all of your dreams, all of your plans, and all of your hopes, and I want you to put all of that, shift the weight from your own foundation of your own two feet, shift it entirely to me. I am a sure foundation. The person that puts their trust in me will never be put to shame. That's what he's getting at. So the question becomes this morning, is this Jesus who is living your cornerstone? Is he your cornerstone? In a room full of people that many of you have been coming for many years, I would imagine many of us say, yes, I've trusted in Jesus. He's my cornerstone. But let me ask the question a little bit differently. What today is acting as your functional cornerstone? What's functionally your cornerstone right now? What are you putting your hope in? What are you putting your value in? What are you putting the trust of your life in? Let me ask you a few diagnostic questions to maybe help you to see what could be your functional cornerstone. Number one, what is it in your life that brings you the most happiness? Really, not what should bring you the most happiness, but what does bring you the most happiness? What is it in your life that you value most? Here's another way of asking that. What is it in your life that if the thought of losing it brings you the most anxiety? Is there anything in your life that if you lost it, it would cause you to say, I'm not sure that life is even worth living anymore? You begin to question that. Here's a very practical one. When you are stressed, when you are tired, when you're anxious, what do you run to? Where does your mind wander to? What fantasies do you go to? Friends, the way that you answered those questions is very revealing. Because here's the thing, even as Christians, all of us are tempted to take our lives and put them and build them on other things other than Christ. Each one of us, this is going to be a temptation. The Christian life is a growing process of of saying, I'm going to take my life off of this foundation and put it onto Christ. But we're always tempted to go back, are we not? Now, some things we look at and we think, well, those couldn't be good foundations. Unhealthy relationships, drinking, alcohol, drugs. We say those clearly are not good foundations to build our life on. But the tricky part about this whole thing is there are some foundations that are very pristine looking, aren't they? You look at them and they look like they could bear the weight of your hopes and your dreams and your joy and your satisfaction and your identity. They look like they are worthy of building your life upon. For some of you, it's family, your kids. You look at that, your family dynamics, and you say, this is what I'm going to build my life on. This is going to be my ultimate value. This is where I'm going to get my joy and my satisfaction. For some of you in this room, it's achievement. You say, I'm going to build my life on achievement, whether it's in school and then at work and then my reputation, I am going to achieve. That's where my hopes and dreams are. That's where my identity is. For some of you, it's your physical fitness. For some of you, it's, it's, it's health. For some of you, it's, it's relationship. For some of you, it's pleasure. For some of you, it's traveling, life experiences, my joy and my happiness. What brings me the most value is this. This is my cornerstone. 
as we think about these things, you need to ask yourself, what functionally is my cornerstone? You see, at one level, those things will bring you genuine happiness. Look at the world. There's a lot of people that are happy based on those things. But here's the problem. What happens is the longer you live and the your structure of your life and what you're building gets larger and larger, all of a sudden what happens is that every false cornerstone begins to reveal its cracks. Doesn't it? You've all been there. You're holding on to something. Your hope was in something. Your identity was something. And all of a sudden you realize this doesn't last. The weight of your life, the pressure of life, it begins to break. You begin to see what used to make me happy doesn't make me happy anymore. That road that promised joy and contentment and identity left those promises unkept. It's a dead-end street. And we begin to see that our life is teetering and tottering. We begin to sway. Why? Because our foundation is not secure. It may be a month maybe a year, maybe a decade. It may even be on your deathbed. But here's what I promise you this morning. You will find that any cornerstone other than Jesus will leave you disappointed. It will leave you disappointed. The harshness of your life will show every other thing to be utterly inadequate as the foundation for your life. Jesus alone, he says, is the living cornerstone. Jesus alone can bear the weight of your life. He is trustworthy. He is God. That's what makes what Peter says next so unbelievably sad. Because what does it say? Not only is he the living stone, but he's a living stone what? Jesus is rejected by men. When I say men, I'm talking about mankind. You see, throughout the scriptures, we are given an abundance of pictures of who Jesus really is. The apostle John tells us this at the beginning of his gospel says, in the beginning was the Word, talking about Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Paul goes on to say it this way in Colossians 1.15. He says, He, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You see, the statement of the earliest Christians, John, Peter, Paul, is all the same. They're all saying this one thing, Jesus is the cornerstone of life. Everything comes from him. Everything originates with him. Everything is going for him. He can bear you, your life. So our response should be what? To trust him, to love him, to value him. But we find that doesn't always happen. Again, John chapter 1, what does it say? The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world, what? Did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. You see, when Jesus came, they did not see the perfect image of God's love. They did not see life. They didn't see that he was the image of the invisible God. Instead, what did they see? They saw the same thing you and I see. They saw a threat. They saw a rival. They saw a king they could not manipulate, nor could they control. And so the ones who should have received him did what? They 
rejected him. The special, God's special people, Israel, who had, God, had seen God's works, they had, had God's word, what did they do? They put him on a cross. They rejected him. But it's important this morning that we not be quick to point the finger at them. Because what does this say? This cornerstone who came into the world was rejected by men. It wasn't just them. It was all mankind. Whether you look at the Gospels, where you look at today, people reject Jesus. You see, there is this false narrative that is somewhat commonplace today that I just felt as I was looking at this, this needs to be addressed. The false narrative kind of goes like this, that people would believe in Jesus if the church just stopped getting in the way, right? Have you ever heard something like that? Jesus is so kind, so loving, so compelling. Anyone would receive him if the church just stopped ruining his reputation. If the church just stopped misrepresenting him, everybody would come to Jesus. We are the problem, not Jesus. Well, friends, if you read the gospel, you find that that narrative just simply is not true. Now, have we as a church in many times and many ways misrepresented Jesus? Yes, of course we have. Have we fallen short of Christ's likeness and being his hands and feet? Yes, we should always be assessing ourselves and repenting of those things. But the reality that history and the gospel show us is that even if we perfectly represent Jesus and we present him to the world as he really is, what's going to happen? Many people are going to walk away. They are going to reject him. Now, praise God, that's not always the case. For many of us in this room, we've experienced where we saw Jesus. He was preached to us the gospel, the good news that he came and he died on the cross as a punishment for our sins, that he is full of grace and truth. We saw Jesus and we said, yes, he's the cornerstone. He's worthy of our building our lives on. That's what we pray for. That's what we're going after. But friends, we need to know that whenever we preach the real Jesus, there will be rejection. Why? Because even in Jesus's life, he was rejected. That's why Peter says that not only is he the cornerstone, but to some, he will be what? A stumbling stone, a rock of offense. It is offensive to many when they hear Jesus's claim, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one gets salvation except through me. People say, Jesus, that's offensive. It's offensive when Jesus looks at us and he says, you are in desperate need of forgiveness because you have rebelled against the God who created you. We say, that is offensive. It's offensive when Jesus looks at us and he says, you need to take up your cross, die to yourself and follow me. We say, that is offensive. Friends, that is why the crowds quickly left Jesus the more he taught. Because Jesus commanded everything. He desired all of their lives. And they said, Jesus, that is offensive. And the same thing happens today. Instead of seeing Jesus as a cornerstone worthy of building their lives on, many people see Jesus as a rival to their plans. They see a threat to their own rule over their lives. They see an uncontrollable king who demands total allegiance and will not give his glory to another. It is not our responsibility to control or determine how someone responds to Jesus. Our role is to present him faithfully. But not just a version of him that sounds good to our culture, but to present the real Jesus. We should do a lot of things when sharing the gospel, but we can never tamper with or edit or add to who he is.
He is the cornerstone, the only cornerstone. So this morning, as we move toward closing, the question becomes simply this. How have you responded to Jesus, the living cornerstone? How are you responding today to Jesus, the living cornerstone? This passage says, really, there's only two options. Look down at verse 7. It says this, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. What Peter is saying is that anytime a, once a woman or man comes face to face with the claims of Jesus, they can never be the same. They will either see him as the precious cornerstone and run to him or what? They will stumble over him because they see him as a rock of offense. There is no middle ground. He says, the honor is for you who believe. And I pray that as many of you in this room, he says, the honor is for you who believe. When you come to Jesus, an extraordinary change happens in your life. Look at it there in verse four and five. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He says, when you come to the living cornerstone, what happens? You become a living stone. It says, because of Jesus' victory over death and sin, life, eternal life, spiritual life is in Jesus' hands. It says, you come to him and you receive that life. You go from spiritual death to spiritual life. And not only that, you all of a sudden get to experience his presence. That's what he's getting at when he says that, that you are becoming living stones built up as a spiritual house. If you wanted to know God in the Old Testament, where did you have to go? The temple, right? That's where God was. If you wanted to know who he is, what he was like, if you wanted to be close to God, you had to go to the temple. But Peter says, not anymore. Jesus is a living stone and and what he's done in his presence, he's made his residence in us. Where we have access to the God who created us. We as the church become a spiritual house built together. But not only are we passive recipients of his presence, what does he say? You are a royal, holy priesthood. Which means this, it doesn't matter who you are this morning, whether you are a doctor or whether you're a pastor or whether you're a teacher or a custodian. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian a long time or you're a brand new Christian. Every single one of you has equal access to God. And not only that, you are useful for his kingdom. Now, are we going to be used in different ways? Absolutely. But he says, all of you become priests. You've been forgiven of your sin, which means you can come boldly into my presence. When you come to the living stone, you become a new person. He speaks to this identity in verses 9 through 10. You're going to look at this next week. It says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
In every way possible, Peter is saying, if you come to Jesus and you build your life upon him, you trust in him, you value him as the ultimate value in your life, what does he say? You will not be put to shame. Far from it, you will receive honor because you will be his. But if that's true, the opposite is also true, is it not? He says, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. To those who do not believe, to those who do not trust in Jesus, to those who remain on the foundation of their own feet instead of trusting their life in Jesus, to those who build their lives on false cornerstones, what does he say? Jesus becomes a stumbling stone. And this isn't talking about how you just stumble and you kind of scrape up your knee. What this is talking about is a fall headlong into separation from God for eternity. A fall that brings about the fullest extent of shame and agony that any of us in this room could ever imagine. I don't say that this morning to scare you. I am trying to tell you what this passage says. It says, you reject Jesus, you do so to your own peril. You ignore the gospel message, you will fall. Because here's the thing. It doesn't matter at the end of the day what you think about Jesus. It does not change who he really is. I appreciate how John Piper said it. It's going to be on the screen. He said this, at the end of the day, if God plans for Jesus to be the chief cornerstone, humans can betray him, desert him, deny him, mock him, strike him, spit on him, hit him with rods, crown him with thorns, strip him, crucify him, and bury him. But... They cannot stop him from being what God destined him to be, the living cornerstone of a great and glorious people. Jesus is and always will be the cornerstone. And so today I join with Peter and I'm just here to implore you. I am a messenger to say this. Jesus extends an invitation. Come to me. Build your life upon me. I will never put you to shame. I will change you. I will give you a new identity. It does not matter this morning how much baggage you are carrying as you came into this room. It does not matter how much shame you carried into this room. It does not matter how much sin you carried into this room. It does not matter how many questions and doubts that you carried into this room. Jesus says, come to me. Lay your burdens upon me. Lay your life, lay your trust, lay your hopes and your aspirations and your dreams. Lay your plans upon me. I can sustain the weight of your life. Only I can sustain the weight. You come to me and I will turn your shame into honor. You come to me and I will forgive your sin. I will carry your burdens. I have no doubt this morning that some of you simply need to come to Jesus today. For some of you, that this may be the first time. Say, Ryan, I've, I've turned from Jesus. I've rejected him my whole life. But this morning, I see that he is the cornerstone, that all the other foundations I'm trying to build, they're crumbling. There is no security there. There is no joy there. There is no contentment there. You say, Ryan, this morning, I want to place my life on the cornerstone. I want to receive forgiveness of my sins. I want to trust in him. I want him to be the Lord of my life. Praise God for you this morning. 
That's what I've been praying for this week. If that's you, I would simply ask that either after the service or maybe just write it on the card, put down there, I want Jesus to be my cornerstone. Write your name. We'll follow up with you this week. Tell somebody, if somebody, you came with somebody, let them know. I want to put my trust in Jesus Christ. But I would imagine that there are also many of you in this room who have been walking with Christ for maybe many years, maybe short time. But as you look at your life, you realize, even though Jesus is the foundation of my life, I've functionally placed a lot of my hopes in my life on other things. I've got a lot of pseudo cornerstones in my life. This morning, what does Jesus say? He says, come to me. I love what he says. Matthew 11, verse 28. He says this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And what? And you will find rest for your souls. This morning, we're going to have a time of prayer. Would you spend this time coming to him? Laying your burdens, laying your life, putting your trust fully on him. He can sustain. 